And uh, let's pray as we continue. Father, uh, it is a blessing to gather with your people. We see your face in the face of your people. And we thank you that you've made us a body and you've placed Christ as our head. What a glorious uh, Lord he is. Uh, We pray tonight that we would see him more clearly as we continue to study the wonderful word that you've left for us uh, that describes him and calls us to faith in him. Father, we continue to pray for the Carsons and for Frida. And Lord, we miss our sister Dorothy, but we thank you that um, she's completed her race and, and she's followed you into glory So we thank you for that hope, Lord. Help us enjoy the things of the world, but not hang on to them and not put our hope and trust in anything that we can see, Lord. You've told us that the things that we can see are temporal, but the unseen things are eternal. We see your Son at your right hand, sitting and reigning, And uh, we look forward to his return. We pray for your mercy and grace on our nation. Lord, we are grieved at at the level of corruption uh, that our leaders uh, seem to be involved in. And there is no fear of you before their eyes. Lord, we know that that could very well be just a judgment from you. We know from your word the different ways that you judge us. So we just ask for mercy and that you'd help us uh, be faithful and honorable to our Lord uh, wherever, whatever you, you bring to pass. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are... Um, let me show you the bigger outline here. We, we, we are going through the New Testament. Welcome, you guys in the back there. We'll, we'll, we'll get the... We'll, have, have we met before or no? No. Okay. I, you know, when you get as old as I am, you think you've met everybody already. <laughs> but it's great, to, it's great to have you with us. We're going to start on page 230, if you can get, get, get some notes there. For, uh, we'll, we'll be starting on page 230 here in a moment. And what we're doing is we're just going through the entirety of the New Testament. We're taking our time. We have plenty of time for questions and interaction with you all here. And if you're in our online audience, you're, you're welcome to uh, chat in a question and Alexis will read, uh, read your question uh, to us. And uh, <clears throat> so we are to the point in the Gospels of Jesus' death by crucifixion and tonight here's here's been our major outline I have it up here on the screen and what we're going to try to accomplish tonight are these three here the events that immediately follow Jesus's death Uh, in the Gospels immediately after Jesus died there's a whole number of things that happened immediately after his death and we're still working through those And then we'll look at Jesus' removal from the cross and his burial. 
And John's account is so unique that we have a second entry here, John's account of the removal of Jesus from the cross and his burial. So these are the three areas we're working on we're working on tonight. We'll, we'll see how far we get. We're beginning uh, with Matthew's account of the events immediately following Jesus' death there on page 230. And we're over in the right-hand column, and we're at Matthew 27, uh, I think at uh, verse 52. Uh, I will put that up here <clears throat> for you. Matthew 27, verse, uh, okay. verse 51. And this passage is uh, very unique and uh, very difficult. And there'll be a lot of questions here that we just don't have answers to. But this, this is what Matthew records for us. And verse 50, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We studied that last week. And we know that that symbolizes that the way into the presence of God is now open. Because the, the temple was set up, you had the Holy of Holies behind a curtain, and then you had the holy part, in front of that, and then the courtyard. And no one except the high priest once a year could go through that inner curtain. Nobody could go. And it, behind, behind that inner curtain was represented the very presence and holiness of God. And when Jesus died for our sins, that, when his death was completed, that a curtain was torn in two, interestingly, from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top, but it was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And we know that that signifies that Jesus' death is the only way that we can go into the presence of God. But it's a sure way. It's the only way, but it is a sure way by His blood. And so we have that wonderful thing that God did to help us understand Jesus' death. And so that was the easy part as far as understanding. And then Matthew goes on, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So let's, let's work on that uh, a little bit. This is Matthew's favorite passage. <laughs> okay, so we finally got here, brother. We, 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 finally, we finally made it here. I couldn't put it off any longer. And Nathaniel's here with me tonight, so, so I already emailed him today. Whatever I can answer, Nathaniel's going to... <laughs> well, th this is quite a passage, and so let's, uh, let's think about it for a little bit. Um, it, it's possible that Matthew sees the earthquake as the means of tearing the curtain, as well as the means of opening the tombs. And the earthquake, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened. 
So that all happens right at the point of Jesus' death. Now, earthquakes in Scripture often represent judgment. Either judgment or this massive manifestation of God's presence. And uh, that's often what they're associated with. Now, even if we assume, and and I think we ought to assume, that these were actual resurrections. This passage is very difficult. I've already said that enough. Now, a quick reading of the passage, it seems as if the people were raised when Christ died, but they didn't come out of their graves and appear in the city until two days after his resurrection. Let's read through this really slow. We, this is one difficulty I think we can solve. Okay, so here we have it. What? And the graves were opened, and many bo- and the graves were opened. Okay, the earthquake, the rock split, and the graves were opened. Now, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Now, here's the difficulty. And coming out of the graves, what? After his resurrection. All right, so there's two days in between the graves being opened and verse 53, and coming out of the grave. So if you just read that as if it's all immediate, you got the graves open and you got the people staying in the graves for two days. And then after the resurrection, they come out of the graves. Probably the best, the best solution to that is, is there's probably a time break right right there in verse 50 and verse 52. The rocks were split and the graves were opened at the point of his death. And two days later, many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves two days later, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So, if that's correct, if there is a two-day break here in what's happening, it's very obvious that Matthew wants to talk about both of these things. He wants to talk about the graves being, the rocks being split and the graves being opened, but he wants to associate that with Jesus' death. Jesus dies and immediately there's this earthquake, graves are split open when he dies. But he wants to associate the resurrection, not immediately, but with Jesus' resurrection two days later. And so I think that's, that's, what, he, that's what he's doing here. Uh, <clears throat> and he wants to put those together here in the passage. Now, Since Matthew jumps ahead in his account to the resurrection, you see what he does here? He jumps ahead to the resurrection. He's not done with the burial and all of that, but suddenly he jumps ahead to the resurrection. Some have said, well, this is a misplaced text. And we've run across these multiple times um, in our New Testaments. By a misplaced text, what, what... What people are saying is, 
Somewhere in the history of the transmission of the text, the copying of the text from generation to generation, a scribe made a mistake and he misplaced a paragraph. He put a paragraph where it really didn't belong and they call that a misplaced text. And some are saying that, well, this is an example of a misplaced text. We've come across a few others since we've been studying the Gospels. But we don't believe in that because we believe this is the Word of God and there aren't any mistakes in here. <laughs> and, and so I think it's not a misplaced text because Matthew wanted to keep death and resurrection together right there. So he, he, he begins with the death that opens, opens the graves. And so <clears throat> um, what I think he's going on Matthew intends to report something about both. I've already said that. Christ's death and his resurrection. He doesn't want to separate them. Perhaps his point is this. This is the best I can do. Christ's death breaks the power of the grave. The graves were open. Christ dies. The power of the grave is broken. And that is greatly illustrated by the fact that there's an earthquake and the graves are open. Okay. Then the saints rise two days later because of Christ's resurrection. There's definitely a problem if these saints rise before Christ's resurrection. That would make no sense at all, would it? I don't think so. Christ is the first fruits. Christ is the first human being. He's God and man. And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have the first actual true resurrection of the ultimate resurrection that's coming. Christ is the first fruits, isn't he? Now, sure, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but what happened to Lazarus again? What happened to him? He died again. So, those resurrections in the gospel are not the ultimate resurrection that's promised in Christ. The first time for a human being that that ultimate resurrection occurred was two days after this death. Okay, so I cannot imagine Matthew putting the resurrection of these saints prior to Christ's resurrection. So, he connects these saints being risen directly after Jesus' resurrection. Uh, so, that would have been sometime on Sunday morning. Correct? We're at, we're at Friday afternoon. We're at Friday late afternoon here. Christ's death is Friday late afternoon. And he's going to rise on Sunday. So... Um, <clears throat> Okay, and coming out of their graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. How many were raised? We don't know. How were they recognizable as the saints? That is probably meaning heroes of the faith. But how were they recognizable? I, I don't know. Um, we don't know how they were recognizable to those they went in and appeared to in the city. Matthew doesn't think... By the way, if this stuff was important, 
we have the answers to these questions. That's why we spend some time on it, and that's fine. But if it was really important, the Lord would have answered all, all, all of those questions. But uh, what's important for Matthew is the effect of Christ's death and the effect of Christ's resurrection, and, and, and I think that. And, and we'll see an Old Testament connection in a minute. Did these saints have bodies like Lazarus, whom Christ raised from the dead? I kind of lean negative on that on that one because since this resurrection is because of Christ's resurrection, how can it be anything less than Jesus' resurrected humanity? That's that's just my 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 reasoning. I, I think this these that were resurrected are are were really resurrected in the final sense. Uh, certainly we don't have to split fellowship over that one. <laughs> So, uh, let's see, what else have you in my notes? Yeah. Were they translated to heaven? Maybe they were. After their appearances, they could have been. Now, is there some Old, con- Old Testament connection to this type of thing? Well, abs- absolutely. Ezekiel 37, of course, is... Um, uh, Ezekiel 37, this vision of the restoration of the people of Israel uh, is very clear. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. Is, Is this resurrection that Matthew records right then, is he aware of Ezekiel 37 and, and that's, that's why he he included that. That that's very possible. That's not not impossible. Uh, <clears throat> so Isaiah twenty six nineteen: Your dead shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise, awake and sing. You who dwell in the dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. So, uh, the, the resurrection is there in the Old Testament, the predictions and the promises of it. Um, so, I should at least mention those texts as we're dealing with this, with this Matthew text. Now, unfortunately, the batteries have gone dead on the, on the mic. <laughs> I'm joking. If you have any questions or comments, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll move on to our next passage. So... <laughs> There you go, my friend. Yes, sir. I have a lot, but I don't want to take up the whole class. So, okay. um, when you alluded with the, about the, the bodies, what you communicate to me and maybe everyone else is that you, when the graves were open, it almost seemed like you were thinking that they were alive and just waiting. No, I, oh, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm saying okay. no. I got you. The okay. graves were simply open. But they weren't alive until after Christ's resurrection. Okay. Okay. And with Lazarus, we don't know when it, when he died again. So we don't know if he was in those graves. But oh, you know what I mean? When you had mentioned how, uh, well, Lazarus, when he would have died again, we all know that. God brought him back to life and he would eventually die again. Yeah. But those individuals, the power of it when they came, when you had said it, you didn't think it was the same as Lazarus, but 
different because it would take away from Christ when he resurrected? I didn't know what you meant. Okay, what, I, what I'm trying to say is, is when Jesus rose from the dead, let's think about his humanity for a moment. When Jesus' humanity, when he rose bodily from the dead, that is not the same as the humanity of those people that Jesus miraculously rose from the dead. That humanity is not fully renewed, as in Adam all die. Lazarus was still in Adam with his body from Adam. And, and you see, that is not the ultimate resurrection that's promised that Jesus brings. And so when Jesus rose that Sunday morning, his humanity was the new humanity that could never die again and was perfect. And obviously, he, his humanity had abilities that we don't understand because he appears in the upper room when all the doors are locked and that type of thing. So th does that help? Okay, so here's the question. Okay. As Christ resurrected those that came out of the graves, we don't see it in Scripture. Do you believe that when Christ, when Christ went up like an axe, when he ascended, that those that came out of the grave that went into town went with him? I have no idea. I, I, I mean, if, if they have the new resurrection body, then they were translated to glory sometime, somewhere, but... No, I don't envision Christ and all of these going up. You know, I never thought about that. I don't have a creative mind like yours, brother. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean that truthfully as, as well as some, as some yes, humor. Yes, one thing for all of us, as I shared with our brother on the way home last Wednesday, the beauty of the fact that we can all just stand in awe is the fact that the graves were open and the people resurrected. Amen. And that's just beautiful. Amen. Yeah. Anybody else want to have a question or a comment about, about this, this passage? In our day, a lot of people don't, know, don't read their Bibles enough to even know this is in here. I, I, I won't do a survey among us as to how many people, uh, even in this church, don't know this, this paragraph is in their Bibles. That would be humbling for us who are your teachers, actually. It works both ways. When you do those kind of surveys, it always comes back on the teachers. Okay, but yeah, let's not lose, Matthew, you're right. This is not just an intellectual exercise. What this is demonstrating is the power and, and the glory of Christ's death and the results that come, that come from that. And so, right here, here you go, Richard. Yeah. I don't know all the particulars, but the idea of <clears throat> bodies rising from the grave used to be important in, in church practice. And that goes to the, the old custom of consecrated ground. You know, that, that, that was a theological debate. What happens at, at, at the trumpet? You know, does the body physically rise out of the grave and join the soul? Well, we would say that, that, that 
what we call physical death, and I think we can make a scriptural argument for that, is the separation of the body from the spirit or the body from the soul. That that, that separ- that's what death is, is the separation of those. And what resurrection is, the final resurrection, is the rejoining, uh, the rejoining of our bodies with, with the soul. Oh, yeah. I'm yeah. With that. Sure. But what I'm saying is that this argument used to be more important. We can't. You have to use the mic. This argument used to be more important in the old church. Okay. Because people could be denied. Uh, consecrated ground to well, be that's there, a they could be denied that, well and and it would affect their superstitions yeah. oh. about being yeah. resurrected you follow i mean if the church would if, yeah. if you were condemned if, uh, i i can't remember a heretic yeah, let's that say, is sad. and you were not buried in consecrated ground after you get burned uh then therefore you could not be resurrected if, oh, that that's know. just that's terrible and it's sad yeah, I, I didn't realize that, that that had been taught in past centuries. Yeah. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, you know, you know what, the, what the biggest, the strongest assurance is? That if you're believing in Christ, you're all going to rise? What do you think it is? What's that? Jesus is resurrection. And what else? What did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? about this. John chapter 6. Of all that the Father gives me, I will lose nothing but what? Raise him up on the last day. That's his job. That's his commitment. And he, and he says that in John chapter 6. Of all that he says it like three times, I think, in that passage in three different ways, and he says, "And I will raise him up." So, and that doesn't depend on any piece of particular that you need to be buried in one particular piece of ground. I'm a little bit, I you know, yeah, I ha- I feel a little bit of righteous anger mm-hmm. if if people were held in bondage about that kind of deal, that I'm not buried in a piece of righteous ground, so now I'm worried if, I'm, if Christ is going to resurrect me or not. So, I just think of those wonderful promises, and Christ will lose nothing, and He says, I will raise Him up on that last day. So, Thanks, Richard. My ire is not directed towards you <laughs> at all. I just, just the thought of that is just very troubling. Um, you know, so praise God for, for the gospel and that we have the word of God so we can truly... All that was the foundation of the racket of uh, the old Catholic Church. Yeah. You, you, you purchased, uh, in addition to indulgences and things like that, which is pretty yeah. well-known common knowledge, uh, the wealthy people uh, had uh, were under a lot of onus to donate their oh. their um, their estate yeah. or part of their estate to yeah. the church. That's how the monastery lands got so so extensive from yeah. donations. Yeah. And and then they would get perpetual masses said for them 
for their souls and things like yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. Okay, we're going to move on to our to our next passage here on page 231 there. Um, on the right-hand side, Jesus' removal from the cross and burial, beginning here in, in Matthew 27, 57. Uh, so let, let's go there. Okay. Mm. Now, a few introductory things here. All four Gospels describe Jesus' burial and the synoptic accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three Gospels are quite similar, but John is very unique and has a, a lot of different information. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through the synoptics first, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, about Christ's burial, and then we'll back up and we'll go, we'll go through it again following John, uh, uh, what he has for us. So Matthew uh, twenty-seven fifty-seven. Now when evening had come there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. And so now we get introduced to a new person. We've never seen this man in the Gospel's history, and here we get it. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. Let's, let's stop there uh, as we start. It's now early Friday evening. The Sabbath observance is, begins at sunset. So they don't have much time. You remember the, the, the hours of darkness went from 12 noon to 3 p.m. And it was sometime after, right around 3 p.m. or after 3 p.m. that Jesus died. And the Sabbath is going to begin at sunset. Hey. So, yeah. Oh, I did all that last week. Yeah, yeah. 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 Wait a minute. No. I didn't do that last week. No, I did not do that last week. I, I, I mixed up on, on the flipping of my own pages. No, <laughs> no, thank you. Well, uh, let, let's back up. I, uh, okay, so I, I flipped. Um, oh, that's what I did. I flipped too many. I flipped another page when I shouldn't have. Whatever. No, we're going to back up. Okay, we're on page 231 on the left hand column, uh, and we're going to turn our attention to a number of important things, the centurion and so forth. So, uh, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus, we're at 2754, let's back up here a few verses. So when the centurion and those who were with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, this, truly this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Joseph, and Mary the mother of Zebedee's sons. We, we considered the women earlier, and there was a reason why we did that. So now we're, we're thinking about this centurion, and, uh, and the soldiers 
And we have this confession of faith now coming out of this centurion. And I'm going to quote from D.A. Carson, and I added a few of my own things in between there. Quote, The darkness, the earthquake, and the cry of desolation, Jesus giving up his spirit, convinced the soldiers that this was no ordinary execution. These portents, or these happenings, terrified them and probably led them to believe that these things testified to heaven's wrath at the perturbation or commission of such a crime in which the soldiers had participated. Okay, the text says, and they were terrified, doesn't it? Yeah, they feared greatly. And they had participated in this execution, hadn't they? The centurion was the leader of this execution. And as he witnesses these things, he is terrified and says, truly this was the Son of God. Now the next thing we grapple with here, this is a little bit technical, what precisely the soldiers meant and the centurion meant by Son of God is not easy to determine. It could be as low as a New American Standard footnote. You know, and they, they give an alternate translation. And in their alternate translation, they say, quote, or a Son of God or even lower, or a son of a god. Now, why are, they, why are they suggesting you should at least think of that possibility when the centurion said that? Why, why would they suggest that? What's that? Because he's a pagan and he's a Roman. Right. He's, uh, that's his understanding of, of God. He's probably, maybe he's a polytheist and all of that, but he knows something supernatural has happened here, and he knows this man was righteous, and this was no ordinary man, and all of that. But in the centurion's mind, he doesn't have an Old Testament or a New Testament. He's got all the Greek and Roman polytheism. So, And the other thing is, there's not a definite article in the Greek text when he says, truly, this was the, the Son of God. There, the article's not there so the translators have to determine whether it should be or not. So what the New American Standard is doing is showing you the lowest possibility, a son of a god, <laughs> because the articles aren't not, you know, the, the word the is not in the Greek text. So, so you, you, we, you just need to think about those things uh, as, as, as we handle the Word of God. Now, that's the lowest end as far as what that expression means, but I want to say a few other things. Um, <clears throat> the, um, the highest end, or, or the statement could be as high as J Jesus himself said, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. That's the highest end of what that expression can mean. 
Now, likely, it's somewhere in between those two poles. However, when Matthew writes his gospel, he would expect us, his readers, to understand it in the highest sense, wouldn't he? Absolutely. When Matthew writes his gospel sometime around 63 A.D., yeah, the centurion is thinking this way, but when we read the gospel, Matthew would expect us to understand that in the highest... Um, you see what I mean? Because we have the rest of his gospel. We have the New Testament. We have the apostolic teaching. So, so in other words, this is another case where the person speaking is speaking far greater than the person themselves know. We have quite a few of those in the Gospel of John. But here the centurion is making a statement that likely is much bigger than he himself even realizes as to who this crucified man is. He is the Son of God in the eternal sense of equal with the Father. So, wow. So what a statement uh, we have recorded here about who Jesus is. Um, <clears throat> so now Mark specifically mentions that there was something about the way Jesus cried out that led the centurion to conclude that Jesus was the Son of God. I'm quoting now from Mark 15.39. So when the centurion who stood opposite him, opposite of Jesus, saw that he cried out like this. You see that? When the, when the centurion saw that he cried out like this, and that is explicitly in the text, our translation, he cried out in a certain way. When he saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Words can't, re words can't repeat the whole, can't reproduce the whole thing. We weren't there. We didn't see it. We didn't hear him cry out like this. But that had something to do with him coming to this conclusion. He must have heard perhaps the what? It is finished. And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He must have heard that. And we also learn from Luke that the centurion is added to the list of those who declared Jesus' innocence also. So when Luke, Luke has this, so when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. So he said two things at least. Surely this was the Son of God, but he also said, according to Luke, this man was a righteous man. So the centurion realizes he has just overseen the horrific execution of a righteous man. I mean, I'm glad I'm not him. I mean... Can you imagine? Yes. 
Ah, I'm smiling because we're probably not going to get there tonight, but there's something interesting coming up about that. Um, so, Luke also gives us one more scene which took place immediately following Jesus' death. There were sympathizers in the crowd. Remember what, what happened when Jesus was on his way to the cross? That, that, that's going to be similar to what we're going to read here. What happened on the way to the cross as Jesus? What, what does it say about some of the daughters of Jerusalem when Jesus was on, on the way to the cross? Mark? That's correct. And it's only Luke that has these two incidences in his gospel. As Jesus was on his way to the cross, there were the daughters of Jerusalem who were following and they were weeping for him. And Jesus said, don't weep for yourselves. And that's in, only in the Gospel of Luke. And what we're, this, what we're looking at right now is also only in the Gospel of Luke. Luke has made it a point to let us know that there were still some sympathizers surrounding his execution. And, and he does that. Let me, let me throw up the text here. He, he does that in Luke 23, 48. Uh, <clears throat> okay. So when the centurion saw that what had happened, he glorified God, saying, "Certainly this was a righteous man." And the whole crowd who came together to that sight, seeing what had been done, beat their breast and returned. That's just an amazing statement. There were people there that once we got to the point of Jesus' actual death, some of them began to be horrified about what had just taken place. And that, that, that expression, they beat their breast, and you can see them beginning to leave the site. <laughs> and as they leave, they're beating their breast, and, it, and it's like they're having a realization similar to the centurion is, is, is what is happening here. And, and so there were some sympathizers of some sort that saw this horrific, uh, horrific uh, display. Uh, so that immediately happened after. Okay. So now uh, we're up to where <laughs> I had I had a displaced text. <laughs> I just did a displaced text. I jumped right over there and I and I displaced the text. Uh, yeah. So anybody have comment or or question on these on these events? Uh, where is the microphone? Give it to Fred. <laughs> Somebody. Oh. Yeah. Mm. Just two things I wonder. I wonder if the centurion was in the group that also beat Jesus the night before. Oh, you're right. And I wonder if the centurion had heard Jews talking about that Jesus had claimed to be the Son of God. Oh, those are excellent points, Fred. Yeah, perhaps... Um Perhaps he heard those. He heard the Jews making that accusations. He 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 claimed that he was the son of God. Yeah, yeah. And anybody else with a thought?
uh, or a question. Okay, now, is that clock working? It is working. Okay. Seems like it's uh, later. Remember the nights the clock stopped working? I did that on purpose. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I, I felt like it was one of those evenings where the clock, uh, the clock had stopped working. So, so those, um, those are all the events that happened right immediately at his death. And then the account moves on. We can we got about ten minutes. We can we can go in, go into this some is. <clears throat> so now we get introduced to Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, <clears throat> so when evening had come, I already explained that it's almost the Sabbath. The Sabbath is going to begin here now. Uh, so when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea. Arimathea was a uh, maybe about 40 miles from Jerusalem. We're not 100% sure we know the location, but likely um, that's, that's where he, he lived. Um, named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to Joseph. So um, we don't have much time because the Sabbath is going to begin when the sun sets that Friday evening. Uh, so now uh, Matthew says, yeah, he says a rich man, correct? Right. Matthew is the, the only one that tells us that Joseph was a rich man. Though Matthew doesn't invoke the passage, what maybe is in the back of his mind here? Can you think of anything in the Old Testament? <laughs> what? Yes, I, I, the the famous uh, Isaiah Isaiah fifty three. Um, I believe I do have it here, right there. The famous Isaiah 53 passage has it in there. For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked. And then we have this, this break here. But with the rich at his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Okay? That statement, when you first read it in the context of Isaiah, when Isaiah was written, it's like, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, what is that even talking about? You know, that's like a virgin shall conceive. That doesn't make any sense either. And this statement is kind of like that, but with the rich at his death. So there it is. Obviously, that passage in Isaiah is being fulfilled in, in Jesus. So Matthew is the only one, but Matthew points it out that Joseph was, a, was rich. Now, Mark points out something else that... The first time I read it really, really surprised me. We're at Mark fifteen forty three. Um, is uh, I should have done that. 
Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member. Council meaning the Sanhedrin that sentenced Jesus to death. This man not only has become a disciple of Jesus, he was a prominent, not a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. So, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. We're reading, we're reading Luke now. So, um, let's, let, let me get to my own notes. Oh yeah, he was waiting for the kingdom of God. It's like Joseph is one of the remnants Remnant true believers. If you run into them in Luke's account of the gospel, don't you? He's, he's one of the believing remnant among, among the Jews, like, uh, like Mary and Joseph and Zacharias and Elizabeth and Simeon and Anna and Nathaniel, who's the Israelite indeed, they are waiting for the kingdom of God. They have a genuine faith in, in God and they're waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for the kingdom of God, meaning they're waiting for the Messiah to come who will establish the kingdom. And so it, that's what that expression is. And, you know, uh, Joseph, uh, maybe even prior to Jesus's coming was one of those Old Testament saints. He, he may very well be. I mean, if he was, he is in a rough place being a member of the Sanhedrin at this time in, in history. But uh, <clears throat> Luke gives us that information. So, Excuse yeah. On that, Correct. That is correct. That's right. Yeah, it's it's very similar. They lived the kind of faith we live in is very similar to them. We're we're looking forward to the next great eschatological event. And there's only one left. Well, it depends on your eschatology. Okay, I think there's only one left, and that's the second coming of Christ. And we are, just like they are looking, looking for the kingdom, we are looking for the final eschatological kingdom when Jesus, when Jesus returns. Amen. And, and that's, our living, that's to be our living hope. And we, we, you know, you have a good zeal for that, brother, and, and we should feel excited like you do about that. And, and so, thank you. Don't ever lose that. You know, don't, don't, don't ever lose that. Uh, <clears throat> so, we, we see that in this, this man, uh, Joseph, here. Um, <clears throat> right. Okay, now, since, since Joseph was a prominent council member, he likely was not a stranger to Pilate. Okay? And that gave the disciples access to Pilate. None of, the, none of the disciples could have gone into Pilate and asked for the body. That, they never could have done that. 
But Joseph is a prominent member of the council, so that probably gives him access to Pilate. And he uses that at this critical juncture, right? This is a critical juncture. They want to honor the Lord Jesus. And at this point, Joseph steps out. And, and uh, he takes courage, as Mark says, and he's the one. This is his hour. This is his moment. Nobody else has this opportunity to go, go into Pilate. Okay? And uh, <clears throat> so that's what he does. Nevertheless, we are told Joseph, what? Taking courage, went into Pilate. Now, this is the first indication that Jesus' followers, the eleven and other disciples like Joseph, were fearful that they too might become targets as members of a rebellion needing to be suppressed. They're afraid. You know, Pilate and the Jews are viewing them, well, Pilate isn't, but they're still afraid. You know, are they viewed as insurrectionists? And it begins with Jesus, and it's gonna, now it's going to come upon us. So where do we find them? Where do we find them on Saturday and Sunday? Where do we find the eleven and the other disciples? We find them all behind locked doors in that room in Jerusalem for fear of the Jews. On Saturday, well, uh, yeah, that's right. Sunday, he wasn't there. All we know is, is he wasn't there Sunday evening when Jesus appeared. Okay. I suspect Thomas was there on Saturday, but I, but I don't know. Uh, that's right. So, for some reason, Thomas wasn't there. Right? Maybe he wasn't afraid of the Jews. You know, he's the one who said, well, let us go up to Jerusalem and die with him, right? Yes. <laughs> so he, we're, we're all going to die. Not only Jesus, we're all going to die. So Thomas is out there w- waiting to die, maybe. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Um, so uh, he goes up there. They were too fearful. Maybe they, were, maybe they would be targets. But <clears throat> taking courage, uh, Mark tells us. Joseph went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, from Mark, we know that Pilate did not immediately grant Joseph's request. Mark 15, we learn a, we learn a few more things. Mark 15, 44. Uh, Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him, if he had been dead for some time. So when he, Pilate, found out from the centurion, he granted the body of Joseph. Now there's even more here, but we're going to have to wait till we get to the Gospel of John. There's even more detail about this. So he granted the body to Joseph. Then he, Joseph, brought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. So Joseph took Jesus off the cross. Okay? And he brought fine, which would mean expensive, expensive linen, and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph 
Joseph observed where he was laid. So uh, they were there, okay? These two ladies actually witnessed Jesus' burial in that, in that tomb. And the other gospel authors are, are going to say that as well. Um, now, the fact that Pilate allowed Joseph to have Jesus' body is another indication that Pilate did not believe Jesus was an insurrectionist. If, when they crucified and executed rebels and insurrectionists, they never turned the body over to the family. They left it intentionally hanging on the cross for days for more public shame. So, so that is just consistent that Pilate never believed that Jesus was an was a insurrectionist. So he turns the body over to those that, that, that love Jesus. So Now, <clears throat> Joseph, with the help of Nicodemus, removed Jesus' body from the cross. Uh, he took it down, and we'll find when we get to John that Nicodemus appears, and Joseph would have needed help. And um, so I'm, let me, I'm going to go through my last paragraph here, and then, and then we'll stop. So we find out later, J- Joseph, with the help of Nicodemus, removed Jesus' body from the cross. He took it down. Luke said that wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, Matthew 27:59 says that, and added up to 75 pounds of spices, John 19 says that, and laid it in his new tomb where no one had ever lain before, uh, Luke says that, which he had hewn out of the rock this was an expensive tomb <laughs> he, with, a, with a rich man in his death. And this type of tomb reflects what Matthew said, that Joseph was rich. And 75 pounds <laughs> of those spices? I mean, I haven't taken the time to try to translate that into American dollars, but that's thousands and thousands of dollars worth of spices of those kind of spices. So that's the burial they wanted to honor, honor the Lord with. And so they did that, and they, uh, <clears throat> and, and they had this huge rock or stone, and they rolled it, and, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. So... As they performed the burial, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, watched. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. Matthew 27, 61 shows us that a little bit more detail. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary, Matthew who knows? There's so many Marys. <laughs> How do you mean the other Mary? <laughs> we don't know who the other Mary is, Matthew. <laughs> the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. It, it's almost like they were sitting where they could observe everything. I, I don't know. That's how I, I, I see that. Observe everything that was taking place. So, 
Okay, so that's that's where we need to stop uh, for this evening. Any any other comment? Oh, go ahead, Brian. Um, one of the things you kind of pointed out that why Joseph was bold is if he wasn't participating in the um, mock trial, yeah. and he didn't make a fool of himself in front of Pilate, not only would he have been more bold or girded up, but if you can imagine, none of the other Jews probably would have, Pilate would have never even wanted to see them after what they did. And oh. Pilate probably knew when this guy shows up or his you know, guard says, hey, there's another council member here to see you, yeah. would have only seen him because he didn't participate. Otherwise, he might have said, oh. I, well, I'm not going to see any of these guys again. Yeah. So there might have been this whole connection there where they neither of them, yeah. knew, they knew that he wasn't a part of that. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, because Pilate would have initially thought, I mean, maybe, you know, the whole Sanhedrin condemned him, but maybe Pilate did have some awareness that this this one member... Yeah, that's right. I hadn't thought about that. And yeah, and you wonder, you know, was was Joseph in those mock trials, the one in the middle of the night? Probably not. Nicodemus was also a council member. So well, that gives more weight to uh, the chief priests picked the men that they knew would condemn him. We were talking about that yeah. when he threw together right. that meeting in the middle of the night. In the middle of the night, who who got yeah, notified who, who, and who don't didn't. wake up these guys? <laughs> that that very well could have been. Yeah, it's a, it's a speculation. I know. No, but no, but it's it's good to try to relive it. You know, to get in there and think about all the historical things that are taking place uh, because it's real. Yeah. I mean, th- 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 this is real history. So, any anybody else have a have a comment uh, comment or a question? Okay. What are your names? My name is Christian. Christian? My name's Tierra. Sierra? Tierra. I have hearing aids besides and they're still not Okay, all right. All of the rest of these it's great having you. And this young lady up front? Anna. Anna. Okay, I got that one. It's great. It's great having you. And the little one? Mateo. Mateo. I got it. Mateo. Mateo. Okay, that's that's great. God's blessed you with a with a wonderful child. So, okay, I'm going to ask Fred to lead us in prayer tonight when 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 we end. <clears throat> Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for bringing us here safely tonight. Thank you, Lord, that uh, we can think about your death and your resurrection, and we can think about all these things and all these people that really lived and these things really happened. Lord, help us to believe it and help us to be people that are always waiting for you, Lord, and for your return and to be excited about it, Lord. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would give us the faith that we need every day and the grace and the love. Help us to love you, Lord, and to love each other. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Amen. Amen.